Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. How you doing? I am doing a-okay. I think last time we did the podcast, there was like epic snow coming. No, maybe we didn't. We did, yeah, because it was Stephanie McClure, and I was yeah. in the middle of a snowstorm. And so now it's raining and washing all of that away. Oh, it's like oh, 70 degrees here. Snow again. Oh, it's going to turn to snow again overnight, so I don't know what I'm going to wake up to. I would be planting seeds. <laughs> that just sounds insane to me. You're going to be planting seeds in February. Mm-hmm. Got my seeds uh, from Strictly Medicinal yesterday, and I'm ready. I got coffee seeds. I'm really excited about that. I'm going to oh. grow some coffee trees. So, yeah, is coffee the kind of thing where you plant it, and then it's like several years before you actually get beans out of it? How does that work? Well, I've never done it before, and it's a tree from Ethiopian, indigenous to Ethiopia, so I don't know that I can, I'll have to keep it on heat to keep it, to get it to germinate, and then I'll have to grow it in a pot for a long time because it doesn't tolerate frost. But, so yes, it's a tree, so it will take a long, long time before before I ever see anything resembling coffee, if ever, similar to my avocado trees. I was going to say, so like in 10 years, I can bug you for your own like homegrown, homebrewed coffee. Uh, yeah, along with my figs, <laughs> my um, pawpaws, and my avocados, uh, all and grapes, and blueberries, all of which are growing in my yard. Oddly, Michigan. There are a lot of vineyards in Michigan, so you should be okay in, in, in Alabama. Oh, actually, the opposite. You guys do better in Michigan than we do. I can't keep grapes alive here because they're not as heat tolerant during the July period. Mm, I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, my grandma had a grape vineyard way back in the day. So, so did I mine, right there in Indiana, where you are. Yeah. She didn't have a vineyard. She had an arbor, a big grape arbor with lots of grapes in it. Yeah. Uh, I was like a tiny vineyard, like, you know, did not like acres and acres. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Who do we have on the show today, Chris? Well, speaking of wine and vineyard, nobody related even remotely to that. No. We have, no. <laughs> Where are you going with this? Well, that's just what we were talking about. But no, we are actually going to be talking to Corey Sparks and Eric Shattuck, who we have had on the show before, about sleep quality and health and you know your immune system. Yeah, I'm actually, again, always happy to talk about sleep quality because last night a cat disrupted my sleep quality basically throughout the night. So well timed for me. Yeah, and as I'm reading this paper, I'm, I'm thinking about how, especially as I've gotten older, when I don't get a good quality of sleep, mm. not only do I wake up, it's not just that I wake up not tired. I feel like my heart is pounding faster and I feel sick. Mm. Like I don't feel like I... You know, it's like when I get up super, super early and have to do one of those red eyes, you know, like I don't recover yeah. from that. So yeah. the links to oh. health that they find in this paper are intuitively, phenomenologically can relate to. Well, it'll be wonderful in preparation for Denver because even a two hour time difference just wrecks me entirely. So uh, it's, it's, it's a good prep. Anyway, so let me give a little intro so we know who we have. We have Dr. Corey Sparks, who's an associate professor in the Department of Demography at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And he is interested in human health disparities, food security, historical demography, and demography of anthropological populations. Uh, And we also have good friend of the pod, Dr. Eric Shattuck, who is an associate professor of research and interim director of the Institute for Health Disparities Research, also at the University of Texas at San Antonio. 
and Eric explores the intersections between our brains and our bodies and how our mental state can affect our physical health and infection and inflammation can affect our behavior and emotions. Let's bring them on. You and I have a mutual friend. Who? Julia Jennings. <laughs> when yeah, I, Julia, when I was, yeah, we, we, we had the misfortune of having the same advisor. <laughs> she told me that you were siblings. Uh, but yeah, when I looked up what you did, I'm like, I wonder if Julia knows uh, Corey. And so I texted her. <laughs> yes. uh, we were colleagues when I was at the University of Albany, and we've maintained oh, yeah, our friendship sure. since leaving. And she's like, well, yes, he's my brother, quote unquote. And so I was very excited. She she speaks the world of you. So oh, that's nice. Yeah, Julia's A wonderful. nice, pleasant way to start that. <laughs> and Eric, welcome back. How are you? Surviving. How are you both? I, I was good, and but now I'm feeling jealous. I have to tell the world. So Eric is wearing a Homo Naledi shirt. Oh, Did you, which I'm guessing is because he went to the exhibit that opened up in Texas and has been nowhere else. That's right. But near, in Texas where they are. Yeah, the uh, where they were. They're back now. Um, was at the Perot Museum, I think it was. Yep. Yeah. Even though that bastard Matt Berger was a student in my class, did not even get me a shirt. Hey, they Matt. are busy enough now with like being told they brought UFOs to South Africa and all these uh, other weird stories. I missed all that. <laughs> it is not the story we're here to talk about, and Matt is not it a is bastard. Not. That was just me being funny. <laughs> anyway, welcome back, Eric, to the Sausage of Science, and welcome to the, for the first time, Corey. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. And yeah. we'll not be talking about SpaghettiOs. Um, well, we just did, so. I was wondering we if there was check that a, box. a callback to the SpaghettiOs discussion. <laughs> SpaghettiOs always need to be brought up. Uh, so, Corey, we always kind of start the, the show with the same play on words, uh, where the podcast is about how the science is made, but we also want to know what went into the making of science. And since Eric has been on the show before, we've kind of gotten his origin story. Uh, but sure. let's hear your origin story. Eric has made uh, of SpaghettiOs. <laughs> no SpaghettiOs. Uh, so I uh, have my degrees in anthropology and demography from Penn State. And I started out as an anthropology major interested in Native American religion because I was a hippie. And really thought that was cool. And uh, became an archaeologist for a little while. And then I started looking at human skeletal remains for a little while. And then I became a demographer and got a real job. And, and I just, uh, I, I've done like all the different parts of anthropology here and there throughout my career and wound up in a department here at UTSA where I get to teach people statistics that needed to learn statistics for real life. And that's pretty much where I am now. I, I teach teach these students how to do statistics all over the campus. And um, yeah, so I, I kind of came into this as uh, the data monkey, if, if you will. <laughs> Almost just like Jerry Garcia himself. <laughs> Did a little bit of everything. A little bit of bluegrass, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Sorry, that's just fun. like hippie statistics. You know? <laughs> oh, that's a feel. That's a book. I think that's also a really nice thing of saying you do not have to decide what you're interested in right away. For people Very listening non-linear. to this show, and you Very can change non-linear. what it is you're interested in and focus in along the way, and that's a good thing because it makes you you have broad interests and you kind of understand a lot of things, even if only peripherally from, you even know, when you studied it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I think Eric, Eric's going to do most of okay. the rest of the talking today because I understand very little of the biology of what he did. So that's okay. But Eric, speaking of which, have there been any updates for you of anything you'd like to talk about since we last spoke? Sure. Gosh, well, was that 2017, 2018? My gosh, a few more gray hairs. I'd say older and wiser, but probably just older. But yeah, there's there's been some updates here at, at UTSA. So uh, I stepped into the role of interim director for the Institute for Health Disparities Research, which I've been doing now since 2020. And I'm totally caught up in the whole COVID time warp thing. So it sounds weird saying it's been like two years now doing that. But, but yeah, and uh, I'm now an assistant professor of research um, with the Institute. Uh, and then I also have a affiliation with the Department of Public Health here at UTSA. Sweet. So the paper that you guys are here to talk to us about today was named the Editor's Choice for the American Journal of Human Biology. So congrats to you both. That is pretty freaking cool. Um, and in the paper, you looked at the potential connection between sleep duration and mortality risk as mediated by immune function. And I was just saying a few minutes ago before you all jumped on, I have a phenomenological sense of this, not necessarily sure if it connects to what you found. When I'm sleep deprived, which apparently during the pandemic means I don't get 10 hours, I wake up with heart palpitations, right? Um, and, 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 I'm, and I'm starting to, to stress about it. Um, and then I read your paper and I'm stressing a lot more. So what do we currently know about the relationship between sleep duration, disruption, and health, and how messed up am I? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question, Chris. I don't want to get into to how messed up you are, but <laughs> the relationship between sleep and health and well-being is, you know, it's pretty widely explored. There's a lot of literature out there, everything from experimental literature, you know, where you're sleep-depriving people for a couple days, there's demographic research, uh, you know, large scale, things like NHANES. Um, so we do know that pretty consistently there's a U-shaped relationship between sleep and mortality risk. So people who get very little sleep regularly, people who get uh, excessive sleep regularly tend to be at higher elevation or higher risk for mortality, usually all-cause mortality. There is some evidence out there that um, you're also at greater risk for cardiovascular disease on either end of that, that sleep spectrum, as well as things like diabetes. In terms of what we know about sleep and immune markers, it's a little all over the map, to be honest. Uh, when I was you know, writing up the introduction and conclusion, there's you know, some markers go up, some markers go down, some markers don't change. It, it kind of depends on what you're looking at. But, um, you know, in meta-analyses, it does seem relatively consistent that, um, you know, inflammation markers, IL-6, CRP, and things like that tend to, uh, tend to be affected by, by sleep. Like I said, there's a lot of studies out there, and so there's a lot of methodologies that are kind of being clutched together uh, in, in those kind of meta-analyses and systematic reviews. And so, you know, are, are you talking about taking somebody who is a habitual late, uh, long sleeper, maybe, and now you're keeping them awake? That may have a different effect than taking somebody who is a regular habitual short sleeper and keeping them awake, right? I mean, we're all phenobiologists. We know plasticity is kind of the, the, the name of the game. Uh, there's also kind of that jump right between what's going on in terms of the immune markers we're looking at 
and then what's going on in terms of health. And so there's, there's a few studies out there that I thought were really interesting, including a couple from uh, Sheldon Cohen's group um, at Carnegie Mellon and common cold studies that they ran where they would actually inoculate people with uh, rhinovirus or flu viruses, and then they would quarantine them. In. And so they've got some really cool results that show that, you know, you're actually more likely to uh, get sick with a cold after that challenge if you are a poor sleeper, right? If you've got short sleep, less efficient sleep. Um, so sleep efficiency is, you know, that proportion of time you spend in bed asleep. Um, I oh gosh, I think the current recommendations are something like maybe 80 to 90 percent is, is what you would like to hit. As I understand it, 100 percent sleep efficiency, you're in bed. As soon as your head hits the pillow, you're out. As soon as you wake up, you're up which hardly ever happens, right? So then there's any kind of range in there. Right, so yeah, so short sleep, less efficient sleep tends to be associated with more more risk of coming down with cold after that challenge, right? So mm -hmm. people who slept better, at least in this study, are more able to fight off that, that challenge. Um, and those, those studies are just super cool because it's like you sprayed this up their nose. You know, you're just waiting for them to get sick and so you can actually follow them uh, through that period and see what happens, and they have all kinds of uh, different different measures. Now, you guys did not spray any COVID or anything up anyone's nose during this study, correct? <laughs> no, we did not. Okay, just just making sure we say that on the record oh, so that right. anyone listening knows that is not the next step here and what we're going to describe. So, what are the gaps that you guys saw in the literature that you then attempted? That you address that you're going to address here with what we're going to talk about next. Yeah, so or, I've I've always been kind of interested in getting after sleep for a number of different reasons. Um, you know, you guys know my work on sickness behavior and things like that, and inflammation and, and so on. Inflammation and the immune system also kind of underlie sleep to some extent. So some of those cytokines like IL six are, you know, they're somnogenic. They make you tired. So that's part of the fatigue and sickness behavior. Um, and then when I was at IU, I was working with Greg Demas uh, in the biology department there. He was on my dissertation committee and he does a lot of work or had done a lot of work with melatonin and immune function in, um, in rodents. And so I was interested there too to explore kind of that nexus of sleep and melatonin and immune function and so on. When I first came to UTSA many years ago, uh, Corey and I were, were tossing around ideas for research, and he has a lot of experience using NHANES and working with, with data sets like that that I, I had absolutely no experience with at the time. Um, and I kind of dug into the data a little bit and found that, hey, there's you know, some measures of sleep. Um, they're self-reported. They're not you know, the, the kind of actigraphy that you know, Dave Sampson and a lot of those people work with. And we have... Uh, some measures of immune function. In this case, we've got white blood cell counts. Um, depending on which wave you're talking about, you have CRP and things like that. Um, and we and you know Corey's able to link these people in NHANES to mortality, so we can actually look at the long term and try to see, as best we can, what's going on here between sleep, immune function, and mortality. Is it the case that disrupted sleep leads to these changes in um, immune markers and changes in inflammation? Does that then have a knock-on effect for long-term health, which is here, you know, mortality? And that's not something that I had seen in the literature to that point. 
I should say that we started this, oh God, 2016, I think. So it's, it's been in the works for a while. But at that point, I hadn't seen anything like that. Everything on sleep and immunity, sleep and inflammation was either cross-sectional or it was experimental. So this was kind of a way to get at a longitudinal approach. So before we, we shift over to Corey and actually ask about the modeling and how you, how you do this sort of analysis, could you explain for our audience, you focus on white blood cells and monocytes. Uh, why were those two the focus? Is it something like a nature of the NHANES data itself and what's available? Or why were those specifically chosen if you had other options? Yeah, so when we looked at what we had across, I think we used five waves of NHANES data. When we looked at what we had across all those different waves, it was really the white blood cells that stood out. Um, things like uh, CRP and other measures are a little bit more sporadic. So we were able to get a much larger sample size if we focused on the white blood cell count. Um, we, you know, it's, it's something that they, they collect periodically when they come around the country and, you know, take blood samples from the people who are participating. Um, we looked at monocytes. So monocytes are a subset of white blood cells, right? You've got your, your neutrophils and eosinophils and basophils all under that white blood cell umbrella. And we had looked at all the different types because when you do the complete blood count, you get the different types of white blood cells. And so we had looked at all the different types, wondering if, okay, are we seeing effects based on white blood cells in total, or are we seeing like immune cell specific uh, effects? And it turns out that the only effects that we really saw of any significance when we got and drilled down into it were those, those monocytes. So now, Corey, uh, how about you please tell us about the analysis of how you take, you know, over data from over 11,000 individuals when looking at mortality, especially when there are so many causes of mortality, sleep duration and quality, and then the white blood cells and monocytes. How do you make sense of any of that? So, you know, we use models and models are just a way of doing fancy averaging. So, you know, like Chris was asking earlier, uh, you know, how can we relate this to his personal sleep patterns? And you can't, this is all averages. This is all uh, trends that you see after data have been averaged internally in models. So it's, it's all kind of a way of cooking the data, right? Uh, which is what statistics is meant to. It's summarizing and boiling things down. And uh, so th this is a, you know, we use like four or five waves of the NHANES and part of those people every year get uh, their blood drawn. That's how we measure their other blood cell counts. And it's taking place at different stages of data collection. Never, It's never the same day. So it's a little bit messy in order to establish what changes of causation here because they, they're given a questionnaire one day and then a week later they come back and they do uh, fasting and they do a blood draw. And they, so it's, 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 it's kind of messy. And then they follow them up. Uh, administrators at the National Center for Health Statistics followed up the people in the survey to the Social Security Death Index because Social Security loves to know if you're dead because they have to stop paying you if you've died. And so the data that we have are completely publicly available. Anybody in the country can go download them. And I actually put the code to do the analysis on my GitHub site, so I can provide that if you all want that. It's absolutely replicable. And the way we did this was we knew that uh, there was a direct association between all these demographic factors and mortality. 
And we also know there's this direct association between some of these immune function markers and mortality. But we wanted to see if sleep was acting directly through immune function or if sleep was acting indirectly through other things. And so this type of model uh, is pretty commonly used in uh, econometrics literature, which they like to they like to uh, claim everything is theirs. But uh, it's it, it, it's a it's a type of structural equation model that allows you to draw the path of the direct effect of a variable on an outcome versus the indirect effect of a variable acting through something in the middle. And so that's effectively what causal mediation analysis is. And um, so, yeah, what we were able to find was that, yeah, sleep is acting um, independently sometimes and directly sometimes on mortality. And uh, the causes of mortality here are kind of fuzzy, uh, again, because these are public data and they take the uh, ICD-10 code, that's your, cla that's your classification across death, and they boil it down to about seven or eight different categories. Um, there are restricted use data that you can get that are actually the exact cause of death, so you could link it individually to a specific cause, although you run into small data problems there. And so it's you know, the fact that we're able to still see a signal despite all these noisy things that I just went through, to us, is, uh, sounds meaningful. And I mean, it's meaningful in a statistical sense, in terms of a pragmatic sense of whether Chris is going to die because he sleeps seven hours versus 10 hours. I can't really comment on that because any good statistician knows that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And ours is just one of those useful models. Thank you for throwing out that platitude. I love that. It's one of my favorite. And I got a new one yesterday, which is that all science is, is wrong because it's all models. That we're building up and it should be i'd like to also add that you can't see this at, uh but i have a, a mug that says i make a great second author right here <laughs> i love that so the question that pops into my head is both as i'm reading this and as i'm listening to you one is is one everybody you answered this but i'm going to ask it again anyway because you said there's a lot of there's a lot of fuzziness and 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 what we know is we don't have any of the demographic information of these 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 folks right to understand what's going on in the rest of their life so right. so messy signal right so given gi yeah so so given that then like when we hear sleep has a direct impact and an indirect impact uh, impact on on mortality what does that mean right and then what like, what does it mean statistically with what you're looking at? And then what does it imply about what we don't already know? So the direct impact means that there's a there's an association or correlation between the amount of sleep that you get, both either too high or too low, and your probability of death. That's, again, that boils down to averages and things like that. Uh, indirect means that it, you, ha you still maintain an association even after knowing the effect of sleep on the immune, immune, the immune system's function. And so that's really, that's, that's to where you can almost speak to the quote-unquote causal relationship between sleep and risk of death is because we control for the way in which sleep affects the immune system in addition to the direct impact. So it's, 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 it's a way you can control for both uh, sleep's known effect, but also the way sleep affects the immune system. So the immune factors that you looked at are in the indirect path. Yes. Okay. I, I think I need to add a few more words to my question, right? What is it about sleep? What are the mechanisms by which sleep could directly have an impact? Like me sleeping longer or shorter, what does it affect that may lead to me maybe dying? 
Yeah, and so there's a number of different ideas, right? And the relationship between sleep and inflammation or immune function is, is one of those. But there's, you know, uh, things like, well, it maybe it, it affects sympathetic nervous system or the HPA axis or something like that. And so it's disrupting. And whether you're looking at short or long, right, something outside of that seven to eight or nine hour window that they say we all need, um, something is affecting these biological systems. Is it the case then that, okay, well, sleep is affecting all these different systems, which is probably pretty reasonable, right? Everything's connected. Uh, or is it that, you know, really what we're seeing is that when you sleep poorly, and again, whether that means short or long or disrupted or what have you, um, are we seeing that the immune changes, uh, uh, the immune perturbations that are going on, is that sufficient to increase your risk of mortality? And so, like Corey mentioned, you know, we have some pretty broad, fuzzy categories for mortality uh, in the data that we looked at. I think, if I remember right, our two biggest categories were cardiovascular disease and I think cancers, mm-hmm. right? So most people in our sample who died, died of those two things. And of course, under cancer, there's a laundry list. Under cardiovascular disease, there's a laundry list. We can't really do any better than that with the data that we have. Um, but when you look at the literature too, you do see that um, people are looking at changes in immune marker counts and changes in inflammation as uh, underlying some of these conditions, right? Cardiovascular disease and plaque buildup in your in your uh, blood system, for instance, underlying cancer and so on. So there is a potential mechanism there for um, poor sleep to contribute to some of these larger diseases like cancer, cardiovascular disease through its effects on immune function and inflammation. And then of course, that can lead uh, down the road to mortality. Uh, but there's other examples of sleep affecting mortality. So like alertness could be one, right? You think about getting behind the wheel of a car if you're only on a couple hours sleep um, and car accidents or, or something like that could certainly uh, also be related with, with sleep problems. We uh, made very sure that we removed anything like that. You know, so we didn't have any accidents or um, homicides and things like that. The mortality that we were specifically interested in is... I think we call it biological causes in in the paper itself. That makes me think of daylight savings time and how there's always an uptick in accidents, whether it's because of lack of sleep or people messing up the time and driving wildly to work that day. (laughs) Uh, So I was actually, it was maybe NPR earlier this week or late last week where they were talking about this biphasic sleep pattern that was very common in the Middle Ages, so we see, and that we've seen it in, in you know, Dave Sampson has brought this up before, and, but what it all comes down to is that there are likely lots of different styles of sleep, and it isn't just one thing or the other, and it probably varies geographically, culturally, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so you bring up this really interesting contradiction uh, in the paper that there's evidence for sleep duration style plasticity um, as a marker of human evolution, and that's the biphasic versus the long duration style that we kind of have now. And yet there's strong evidence that disturbed sleep, which someone might consider biphasic disturbed sleep, uh, negatively impacts health. So how do we reconcile that, or what do we need to reconcile that? Yeah, um, you know, Dave and I had a lot of really interesting conversations um, 
and I'll give them a shout out for reading over the paper when we, when we had it in draft and, and really offering some really, really excellent comments. Um, I think it would be fantastic to do some similar studies, not to ours, but to, but to the cross-sectional studies on immune function and health and, and things like this in general with populations that do exhibit, you know, biphasic sleep patterns or, you know, more sleep plasticity than we, than we really have here in the U.S., the West, the global North. And I think that would give us a sense of, of what's really going on. Is it the case that the kinds of results that we find when we put people in a sleep lab, the kind of results that Corey and I found in this paper, is that just kind of limited to the kind of um, marathon of sleep that a lot of us get, which could be considered that seven to nine hours, right? Um, is there something else going on too, right? Because if you saw in the paper, when we looked at the monocytes specifically, once we added in our control variables, we adjusted the models for BMI, race, ethnicity, gender, um, self-rated health. I think there was one other one that we adjusted for as well. The effects that we saw on sleep, monocytes, and mortality had disappeared once we added those controls in. So that to us suggests that what we're seeing um, in the unadjusted models is really explained by one of those those other controlled variables, right? So it may be that what we are looking at is maybe some kind of interaction effect, right? That, you know, sure, poor sleep leads to changes in immune cells and mortality, but also poor sleep, you know, needs that, um, that extra stress or something like that, right? That if you remove any kind of effects of, of stress, not that that's really ever possible, right? But if you were to control for some of that, right, would you would you still see the effects that we're seeing? Um, how would it vary in environments where there's not a lot of light pollution and noise pollution and things like that too, right? So I think being able to get some data that we can kind of directly compare and see what's going on would be really, really helpful. So I just want to kind of back up for a second and qualify some of the things we're saying for people who might be listening and be like, I have no idea what some of those terms mean, because I'll be super honest with you. I do inflammation and immune response work, but I'm not very good at remembering what each of the things are and what they do, because it's so dynamic. So you mentioned monocytes, white blood cells, IL-4. Could you define a few of the key terms and then what do they do that is being affected? Sure. So monocytes are a subpopulation of white blood cells, which are also called leukocytes. Um, monocytes are the cells that uh, differentiate into macrophages and dendritic cells. And they're the ones that go and snuffle up, you know, uh, bacteria or other uh, potential pathogens and things like that. You know, they're the ones that... They snuffle up the, the technical term. Yes, that is technical. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> just, just want to clarify. <laughs> it's a snuffling activity by which they do it too. So it actually. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. With a little hose thing up front. Somebody needs to dub the sound like that onto one of those, you know, like videos. Um, so yeah, so they they will ingest. They'll they'll. I can always never pronounce it. Phagocytize, the. Um, the pathogen, right? They'll they'll essentially digest it, kill it. 
Uh, they also um, present antigens to other immune cells, right? So they'll, you know, say, hey, what is this? Can you fight it? What is it? Uh, and then they also are involved, like a lot of other immune cells are, in producing various cytokines, which are um, probably most easily described as like the hormones of the immune system, right? They uh, very often circulate throughout the body. They help to coordinate immune responses in, in the local area. And then, of course, uh, they can also affect mood and behavior. Um, so when we, the, that's kind of the interesting thing too, right? And um, something I mentioned in answering the first question is just because we see changes in these cell counts due to disturbed sleep and, and things like that, it doesn't necessarily follow that um, immune function is going to be significantly affected. Um, that is why I'm kind of a fan of that, that paper from Cohen and his group, because it does show, well, okay, we know that there's things happening with the immune system in terms of poor sleep, and we're also able to show that there's apparently something going on in terms of the actual um, efficacy of immune responses, because you're more likely to, to get that cold, you're more likely to seroconvert, come down with symptoms, and so on. Um, and I think, you know, that, that kind of idea of... Um, you know, biological normalcy is is important to remember here mm. that you know just because we see these changes doesn't necessarily mean that you know doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad per se right certainly over over long periods of time sure anything you know kind of that elevated inflammation that elevated allostatic load and things like that we know that that's detrimental to the body over the short term you know if you go a weekend without much sleep you know who knows right yeah, I'll, I'll add that despite my complaints about my sleep quality, my doctor says I'm okay. Maybe I'm just getting old. And anybody now, who's ever had children knows that you, you don't get any sleep for at least a good year and a half. So, uh, and we're that would be another interesting study is you know folks without kids versus folks with kids. If you end up seeing any long term effects of that, and it's a long duration of like yes. chronic sleep deprivation. It's not just one night. It is many, 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 many nights many rolled nights. into one. Uh, so speaking of which, it's kind of a cool study that could be done. What's next for the two of you? Corey, what's next for you? What's on your plate these days? I'm writing a book about R right now. And that's primarily the thing that I do every single day is I, I write about my uh, applied demographic data analysis in R. And so that's pretty much what I live, sleep, eat, and breathe is the R programming language. Hence the so whiteboard that says, I love R behind you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> they don't pay me, they're free. So they uh, they don't do that. Uh, yeah, that's primarily what I'm doing right now is trying to get that out by a late spring deadline. And uh, and then, you know, I, I collaborate with lots of different people. So I have little projects here and there that are in various stages. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with Eric next, though. We haven't talked about that much recently. We had such a devil of a time uh, with this paper. We had we finally found it a good home. Uh, what about you, Eric? What are you doing next? Uh, well, first, I want to say that if you haven't already signed your well, of course, you signed the contract with the publisher, but I think Hippie Statistics would be a great title for that book. <laughs> I don't think Springer does that. <laughs> your next book, then. Your next book. We're kind of straight cheaters over there. Yeah. Well, you'll have to do like a popular press one for your, for your next book. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I've been pretty busy over the last uh, couple of years with the, with the new position and everything. 
Um, COVID obviously really affected ability to do a lot of the research that we do, which of course is in person. Um, and I got to say that's another kind of good thing about working on this paper is that, you know, we were able to use NAMES. It's all publicly available if you can download it, you know. And I think there was also uh, Asher Rossinger's paper on you know, secondary data sources that came out just before COVID. It's a very, very timeline. I think all of us anthropologists kind of went to NHANES and MIDAS and, and AdHealth and all those. And we're like, okay, well, we need to keep moving forward. Um, I am excited, though, to hopefully soon, when everything is safe and good, be able to get into the field. I've got uh, collaborators in Mexico, um, and we are looking to work on health and issues around acculturation and inflammation and sleep in an indigenous group there, about ten hours north of Guadalajara by car. Um, so I think right now we have we're probably going to launch kind of a remote, real basic survey, uh, just something super easy. We can get a little bit of pilot data going, and then whenever safe, be able to be able to travel down there. Um, going to be working with Dave Sampson and uh, one of his students on this. So we uh, hope to be able to, you know, get some back to graphic sleep data there and really work on, on kind of establishing a great working relationship with this group and hope to be able to bring you know, students and other collaborators down to explore those topics. Sweet. Well, before we let you go, I have a follow-up question for Corey. So a, a few interviews ago, another uh, person, I think it was James Gibb, who did an Haynes analysis using R, uh, put me, uh, I, I, I read it, I had imposter syndrome because I don't know R, I don't use R, but since grad school, everybody's R, 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 right? So I posted on uh, Twitter, I said, I'm, I'm having imposter syndrome around R, I don't know R, I use SPSS, but I, and I, I, I have yet to encounter a situation where I, I need to learn it, so what is it that I'm missing? And I had several um, pretty good responses, but I'm wondering how you would respond. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm super cheap, so I don't like to pay for anything. So, uh, yeah, I, I, and I think that speaks to a lot of students that may be listening. You know, uh, R is free. Uh, you don't have to pay for it ever. So that's that's one that's one uh, positive there that I think it gets a lot of sort of cred about. Um, secondly, it's the language that statistics is developed in. Uh, people don't develop new methods in SPSS or SAS or Stata. They develop things in Fortran, C++, and then the number one place where they port their new methodologies is into R. So I like to think that R presents sort of the bleeding edge of development of statistical science. And that's, you know, that's part of the reason why I hardly ever get anything done is because there's so many new things coming out in there. The development is so fast that it's, you know, I've been using R for 20 years. I learned it in my master's degree, and uh, I do not classify myself as an R master just because there's always so much more to learn. And I think I collaborated with with James uh, that you mentioned earlier on some of his stuff that he, I think, inadvertently uh, collaborated through Eric, I think. Um uh, to me, you know, R is so hot because that's where everything's being developed. Mm. And anything that comes out new that's a new innovative method, that's where you're going to find it. And, you know, a linear regression you can do in anything and get the same answer. That's fine. 
there's certain things that just don't exist outside of the, our ecosystem. And that's why I'm, I'm really attracted to it is because I, I get really distracted really easily and I, and I love all the different things that are coming out and it's just really exciting for uh, a data nerd like me. Nice. I like I like that. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, you can change your, your data points on your scatter plots to be like little cats. Oh. Can't do that. You can't do that or dogs, sure. You know, this is both kinds of people in the world. Cats, Whoa. That alone should tell you. You you just fucking sold me. <laughs> Holy shit. Can I can I put my dog? Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> right. Uh, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, it's that that it. gonna bring you over to our flock. It's great. Dog data points. Uh, so or we your always pack. So we always like to end the show on the same question, and I, I think we want an update on Eric, too, because we haven't talked to you on the show officially in several years, and there's been a pandemic. Uh, but what completes each of you outside of R and academia? What sort of fun things do you do? You're like Me R, either. just R, that's it. <laughs> I, I do. I, I read R code every single day. So Let's start with Corey. Code. I I love it. It's great. But, you know, the number one thing that really completes me is, you know, I, I have an amazing wife and two amazing kids and I I wouldn't be who I am without them. And so that's really the most important thing for me is that and um, you know family in general is really important and I think that's that does you don't see that a lot in academia and so uh, I'm very proud to report that you know I've, that's number one for me is that it always will be. And I like playing guitar and stuff too and playing with R but yeah my wife's pretty amazing so what kind of guitar? I see your uh, chart back there. Yeah, bass guitars, a little bit of this, dulcimer, sure. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Um, Eric. Yeah. I, yeah, the, the pandemic's been kind of bonkers, obviously. Um, I was able to uh, get back into to bike riding really recently, so I finally got myself a bike that fits my <laughs> fits my oh. bike. A hog, right? You're talking choppers? No, no, no. <laughs> Just the regular bicycles. I, uh, my wife won't let me have a motorcycle. Probably <laughs> for the best. Yeah, because, um, uh, yeah, you know, I'm like 6'5", and so, you know, when you're That's why I was thinking, like, yeah, right? I can see you're Eric. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, no, when you're younger, you know, so I had, I had a frame that fit decently, but it's like as you get older, you know, it's things hurt longer and you don't mm -hmm. move as well and so on so my goal for this year is to that's ride damn monocytes it is yeah my goal this year is to ride about 35 miles which would be one side of san antonio to the other on the greenway um then trying to get back into playing drums regularly so Corey and i definitely need to need to form a band uh and my lovely wife and my my three fur babies, my three cats. Wonderful. Yeah. How's your sleep? <laughs> Could be better. <laughs> Corey. Oh, like a baby. I take I take half of a, a, a unisom or something when I'm really struggling. <laughs> Knocks me clean out. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Not not in the data unisom. Not in the data set. Doesn't count. They <laughs> also do not support sure. the show. <laughs> that is not product placement. It's from it's from it's from Costco. So Costco doesn't support the show either, but you know it's a generic <laughs> brand. But, but they could. Sorry. We're open to it. Good touch, Costco. Well, thank you. <laughs> 
thank you both for for uh, doing our our development and and finding ad advertising for us. Uh, we appreciate that, and for for your 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 research, your good humor, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs>